What's going on, Renaissance family? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. So grateful that you have tuned in with us for our online service. Before we get into today's message, which I hope will be really timely for where we are, I want to pray for us. So Heavenly Father, uh, you know all the thoughts and fears and frustrations and concerns that we have. And I pray that your word today would just speak to us in a really clear and powerful way. And we would hear from you uh, and it would give us courage, it would give us hope, and it would give us faith. So bless us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So years ago, I had a life-changing experience, and it happened while water skiing in Jamaica. Now, that's not a humble brag, uh, but I was out on a boat with some family and friends, and we were going water skiing. It was my first time going. Now, if you know me, you know that I am competitive, probably to a fault. And I was watching the guy ahead of us killing it on the water skis. So when I got to the front, when it was my turn next, I told the guy who was operating the boat, yo fam, when it's my turn, gun it. And he did gun it. And about 10 seconds into water skiing, I was underwater being dragged underneath and feeling for real, for real, like I was about to drown because of so much water being shoved into my mouth. Now, mercifully, the driver stopped about 10 seconds later and he turned back and looked at me. He said, Jordan, let go of that rope, man. Now, please don't judge my Jafakan accent, everyone, but it is a very simple concept that for whatever reason, that day I didn't get it, but the easiest way to not drown while water skiing is to let go of the rope. Now, in a lot of ways, that story is a metaphor for my life. No matter what life throws at me, even when I know I can't handle it, I still hold on to the rope. I try to control things and I have a really hard time of letting go of control or the feeling of control that I think I have. Now, I know I'm not the only person that has experienced that, this search for control. And here's a problem with that. I have been dragged underwater in frustrations, in anxiety, in trying to control things that I can't control. Now, here's the thing, what it means to even walk by faith. By definition, to walk by faith means that to a certain extent, to a large extent, you are not in control. Now, here's a few things about me that might also be true about you, and I know I'm not alone in this. Uh, all of us prefer certainty over uncertainty, right? So we all prefer certainty over uncertainty. We love feeling like we know how things are going to play out. And when things are not going the way that we think they should be going, we start to stress out. The second thing that's true about me is I prefer feeling powerful and being powerful or being vulnerable, right? Nobody likes to be vulnerable. Nobody wants to feel weak. And we feel that sometimes if we're not in control, if we're vulnerable, then anybody can just take advantage of us and it's a pretty bad feeling. Now, the third thing that's true about me that might also be true about you is this. We prefer independence over dependence. It's hardwired in us since we were children. Uh, my five-year-old right now is coming up on new mi milestones and the new morning fight is who pushes down the toaster uh, in the morning and he wants to put his own Eggo waffle in the toaster. Uh, we got the thick and fluffy ones, those are the, the best ones. We put the, he wants to push the button down because what he craves is independence. This is hardwired into all of our psyches. So we wanna be in control, we don't like feeling powerless and we wanna be independent. Now, the problem is there's a, a lot of stuff in our, in our life that we don't control, that we actually are very dependent. 
that we are we have a lot of uncertainty around us and at no point are we actually powerful. We are very vulnerable. And I don't have to prove this to you. All I have to say is two words, 2020, right? Before this year, you might've put up an argument that you can control things, but 2020 hit like a ton of bricks. And now you and I all realize that we are not in control. Now, this very week, there will no doubt about it be tens of millions of people who will be elated or devastated at the results of this upcoming election. Now, one of the things that we're going to talk about today is that God is in control and this concept called sovereignty. And one of the things I want to say up front as a, as a caveat before we get down the road is uh, everything that we're talking about today, none of it is saying that you should go home and, and do nothing. As we talk about what it looks like to, to live by faith, I think one of the best ways to understand it is like how my boy John, John O says it. He says it like this, wherever we see in scripture... Uh, wherever we see scripture define God's sovereignty, that God is in control, it is meant to limit our anxiety, not our activity. Say that again. As we see things today in scripture about what do we do when we're not in control of situations and we say that God is in control, that is meant to limit your anxiety, not your activity. So go vote. But what do you do when you find yourself in a situation that you cannot control? You trust in God. Now, I know we have people from all over the map in terms of your faith journey. And here's the beauty of what we're talking about today. Everybody who wants to live a life that pleases God, we all have to live by faith. I was reading the story this past week. or I did the audible. I guess that still counts as reading, right? So I was doing the audible of a book by a woman named Corey Ten Boom, and it was called Hiding Place. And this is a pretty phenomenal book. Uh, she was a part of a church that opposed Hitler and they worked to help save Jews and to, they did so many heroic acts. And in reading her story, a couple of things struck out to me. One is the level of her faith in, in the face of real opposition. So we have uh, a lot of people who claim to be persecuted, but this was real persecution where people were thrown in prison and killed for, for their faith. And in reading it, one of the things I kept thinking is, man, I, I hope that if Jordan Rice were ever faced with the opportunity that I had to choose my safety and my security or following Jesus, I hope that I would choose following Jesus. And in this book, uh, Corey Ten Boom has this quote that I hope you'll memorize, I hope you'll quote it, I hope you'll tweet it, I hope you'll internalize it this week, uh, whether this week turns out to be pure joy or pure misery or something in between, or at some point in the month or, or next year or next decade, you are going to face uncertain situations because you and I are not in control of life. And here's what she says that I hope resonates with you as much as it resonates with me. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust your unknown, uncertain, undetermined future to a known God. Now I want to flush this out a little bit. The implications of this is this. Never be afraid to Trust your unknown financial future, your relational future, your job future, your health, your safety, your security, the stability of your salvation, your legacy, whatever aspect of your unknown future, never be afraid to trust it, to put it into the hands of a known God. Now, here's what makes that so tricky, for me at least. 
If we are honest with ourselves, what makes uncertainty so difficult is not just the uncertainty. The uncertainty is unnerving for sure. It's not just the uncertainty because there are situations that are uncertain that we trust the person who is in control enough that it doesn't freak us out. At the, the, the core of the issue is that deep down inside, you might not think about it this way at first, deep down inside, you and I don't trust that God is good and that God is in control and that God is orchestrating all things, as it says in Ephesians 1.11, that God is working out all things according to the counsel of his own will, that God is actually doing something right now. So the, the task in front of us right now is not to try to predict or figure out what awaits us in the future. There's so many things that we're not ever going to know. The task ahead of us right now in this moment is how do we grow in our faith and our understanding of God so that we, like Corey Ten Boom, can say, I am not afraid to trust my unknown future to a known God. So who is this God that we should be trusting our unknown futures into his hands? Fortunately for us, scripture gives us some insight into who God is. And this is the primary question that you and I need to answer with our lives. There's an author by the name of A.W. Tozer, and he said this, that whatever you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Whatever you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I want to pull some stuff out from Exodus 3 today that's going to help us fill in the gaps of who God is so that we can be people who live by faith, regardless of our circumstances, and trust him and place our unknown futures into his hands. Here's the first thing about God, the real God, not the God of our imagination. The real God that you see happen and occur and talk to people in scripture oftentimes comes to people in unpredictable and in strange ways. The real God, when he shows up on a scene, when he, when he uh, starts an invitation to people, he comes to people in, in strange ways that they can't always predict. Here's what we see in Exodus 3. I'm going to read a couple verses. It says this, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Now, what was it that made Moses go over to where God was. It wasn't that he had warm and tingly feelings. It wasn't that he was moved emotionally. It wasn't any of that. Moses just noticed something that was strange and it was God in that strange circumstance I was inviting Moses into something brand new in his life. Now here's why this is so key and so crucial. This is a concept that is all over scripture. The God of the Bible, the real God, oftentimes, not always, oftentimes comes to people in ways that they would not have expected. It was weird for Moses because Moses knew fire and fire, whenever it touched something, it burned it up. But in this case, there was a fire that was going on, and we'll get to this a little bit later, and this fire was not consuming what it was touching. So Moses went over there to see what was happening, and it was strange. And here's the thing that is true for Moses that's also true for us. For a lot of us, our burning bush 
moment and experience might not be something that at first glance feels like it's God. It might just be strange. The way God comes to people all throughout the Bible, many times it's so misunderstood. So much so that when Jesus came to earth, here's what he says about, uh, here's what it says about his arrival, that the essence of God coming to people in strange ways that they did not recognize. John 1, 10 through 11, it says this, he, Jesus was in the world and peep this, the world was created by him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Two things in that, in that John text. His own people, they didn't perceive or recognize him and they didn't receive him. What does that tell us? What does the scripture in, in Exodus 3 tell us? That you and I are bad judges at divinity. We don't, we're not quick to always guess and we're not reliable people in terms of us understanding what God is like. And when the real God comes to our midst, and engages with us, it might not come in the way that you expect. And here's why this is so important. The greatest danger that many of us face right now is not external. It is internal. It is a belief that you have that goes something like this, that if there is a God, then everything about God should make sense to you and it should come to you in ways that you can understand it and receive it. But underneath that assumption is something extremely uh, dangerous in our lives. It is the assumption that if there is a real God, then nothing about him should upset, confuse, or upset you about this God. And what does that make you? It makes you, it makes you God. It makes, it makes you the one who's the final arbiter for what is right and what is wrong. And in reality, we end up following a lowercase g, God, which is basically you, just a nicer version of you. And this is what I know to be true about uh, me and my life. And I'm always tempted to want to recreate God in my own image, but God won't let me. And I hope he doesn't let you do that either. The first thing we see in the scripture is that God comes to people in strange ways. So this week, this month, this year, whenever you are faced with an unknown situation that just doesn't feel right, it might be an invitation to you from God himself. It might be an invitation from God to, for you to leave previous comforts. It might be an invitation for you to walk in faith in ways that you've never done before. It might be an invitation for you to let go of the rope of your life. Here's the thing about faith. Faith is practiced in the present, but it makes sense in hindsight. Let me say that again. Faith is practiced where we actively trust in God. It's practiced in the present, but it makes sense a lot of times in, in hindsight. This is one scripture in, uh, in John, later in John, where Jesus is with his disciples and he bends down to wash one of his disciples' feet and his disciples are like, Jesus, bro, you're bugging. Like, don't, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't wash my feet. And Jesus says this to him in John 13 and seven. What I'm, doing, what I'm doing, you don't realize now, but afterward, you will understand. For some of us right now, God is coming to us in fears, failures, exhaustion, dead ends, burdens, confusion, and it doesn't feel like God is near. But sometimes these are the burning bush moments that God invites us into. And if we're going to be people who walk by faith, we need to be people who answer God's call. Sometimes that comes to us in, in strange ways. But number two, in order for us to be people who really lay down our lives and trust um, our lives in our unknown futures into the hands of a known God, I'll just speak for me. I need to know that God is not a God that turns a blind eye to oppression. I need to really truly be able to believe that if I'm really going to trust God with my future, 
I need to be able to trust and you need to be able to trust that God will never turn a blind eye to oppression. Um, and here's what we see in the scripture in Exodus verse seven. It says, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land. In order for you and I to be really settled this week, this month, this year, and to be able to trust our unknown future to God, we need to really know deep down in the pit of our souls that God will never turn a blind eye to oppression, that one day God will right everything that is wrong and that God is not neutral or indifferent to oppression. Now, we see this theme all throughout scripture, not just here in Exodus, where God says, I see the misery of my people. I'm, I'm taking note of this and I have come down that he is not indifferent to oppression. And we see this all throughout scripture, even in the way that God introduces himself. Now, it's interesting, whenever I go to speak at another church, which is mostly vig- uh, virtual these days, um, I always get requested to get to give a bio. And my bio is the same every single time that I am Jessica's husband, Josiah and Jameson's dad. I am a lawyer turned pastor and a relapse sneakerhead. And I give this as my bio every single time because this is really the most important part about me, right? And when God gives his introduction about who he is, he shows up on the scene and he says it like this, allow me to reintroduce myself. And this is the real hove. Here's what we see in Psalm 68. It says this, God is in his holy dwelling is a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. When God gives his bios, he says, I'm the one that sticks up for the people that can't stick up for themselves. Jesus, when he introduced himself in his first sermon ever, he picked up the scroll in Isaiah and we see in Luke uh, 4, 18 through 19, This is Jesus when he first hits the scene. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, here's why this is so important, because unless we understand God's predisposition, you and I will be tempted to doubt if we can trust God when you and I observe injustice happening, and I hope none of us would ever think to ourselves that God must not care about what is going on in life. God does care. He cares about it much more than even you and I do. Now, I'll I'll never forget this one story that happened when I was um, in college. The God, he takes note even of the smallest injustices. Now, I told a lot of stories about different people in my life who have helped me even when I was uh, brand new in the faith. And one of my friends uh, was one of my first Christian friends when I, was, when I went to college and started following Jesus. And one day we were hanging out and I was asking him, yo, how are you doing? And he was saying, yo, honestly, like I am struggling. I'm riding a struggle bus. Um, you know, he was doing okay on his own, but he said, man, my roommate put up all of these naked posters of women on, on the wall. And yo, bro, I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to keep my mind pure. I'm trying not to look at images that dehumanize women. But bro, like every time I wake up, that's the first thing I see. And I went over to my roommate and I asked him, I say, hey man, can you you take these posters down? I'm really trying to live my life on a straight and narrow path. And this is definitely not helping. 
And the roommate being the bully that he was, he said, listen, if your walk with God is so real, then these pictures won't bother you. And I remember feeling bad for him because he was really stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he tore the pictures down, then he would have to deal with his roommate who was trying to bully him and he didn't want to get into a fight or anything like that. But if he let them just stay up, then every single morning, the first thing he sees are these images and uh, it was really messing with his, his walk and messing with his mind. And he really didn't know what to do. And I remember just praying with him as he was just praying for God to show up in a situation. Now, what happened next is comical. It's almost perfect timing. Uh, this tough guy, bully roommate, goes out to a party and uh, he gets into the party and he starts mixing it up with some people who are a whole lot tougher than he was. And he realizes that there are people on campus that are now looking for him. Now my school, Morgan State, shout out to Morgan State, uh, was about 5,000, 6,000 people, but it just so happened that I was really good friends with the people that he got mixed up with. So he calls my room and this dude was, was shook, man. Ain't no such thing as halfway crooks. Uh, this dude was absolutely shook. He didn't want none of the smoke. And he called my room begging me like, yo, Jordan, can you go over to so-and-so's room and, and, you know, squash the beef? You know, I got mixed up with some stuff and, you know, he was really scared. And it was one of those moments where it was almost too good to be true. I said, hey, cool, bro. I got you. All you got to do is take the posters down. And once my boy tells me that the posters are down, I'll go over to their room and squash it. Literally like 19 seconds later, my boy called me laughing and like, you know, incoherently babbling, saying, bro, I don't know what just happened, but this dude just ripped all the posters down, threw them in the garbage and told me to call you to let you, to let, uh, you know that they were down. And I went over to the guy's room and it, they didn't, you know, it was, it, it was squashed in two seconds. And it was just really funny that day, right? I got to see a glimpse in a really small situation that God doesn't turn a blind eye to people being bullied and that God shows up in the life of people who cry out to him. Now, that's one really small scenario. But if God shows up in scenarios like that, how much more will God defend the helpless? And we can trust his character on, on that. Just that small story, and we see all over scripture, this glimpse that God is a God who defends the helpless. And God cares. God is invested in in seeking to make sure that oppression is, is over. And he, he enlists you and I to be his servants along towards that, that cause. So much so that you and I can have real faith, real faith that God will also pay attention to the real injustices that are happening, the corruption, the cover-ups, the New England Patriots, that God is going to get to the bottom of it and all things will be made right. But here's the problem with God addressing injustice and corruption and all these different things in, in our lives. Here's the problem with that. A lot of times God doesn't do it in the timeline that you and I expect. God operates on a, a timeline that is so different than ours that oftentimes so many people trip up and they lose faith that they don't want to trust their future in God's hands because God just doesn't operate on our timeline. And even in this text here in, uh, in, in Exodus, God had been seemingly silent for hundreds of years as people were crying out to him. Now, there's, a, there's an old scripture that I've been going through this past week and reflecting on from the book of Mark. And it's a story about a, a guy named Jairus. And Jairus was this wealthy guy, well off, and 
as a dad, man, this story like rips me up every single time I think about it because Jairus' daughter was sick and he heard that Jesus was a healer and he runs and races over to Jesus and Jesus agrees to come back and, and heal his daughter. And Jairus is like, yes, let's go. And he and his, and his team, his entourage, they're rushing, rushing Jesus through the crowd to get to his daughter. And Jesus is just never in a rush, right? So like Jesus stops when a woman touches him and this woman had been bleeding for over a decade and had all these issues. And Jesus stops and turns to this woman and gives her all of, her, of his attention. Now at this part of the story, man, this is what like sends me on a roller coaster, right? So this guy is standing here knowing that his daughter is dying and Jesus is giving his attention to someone else. I don't know if you've ever felt like that before in your life where you really feel like you need God and it feels like God is paying attention to everybody else but you. And the unthinkable happens. Jesus stops and listens to this woman's entire story, it says in scripture. And while she's talking, someone comes to Jairus and says, Jairus, Leave this dude alone because your daughter just your, your daughter just died. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, "Listen, my delays always make things better, not worse. Don't uh, don't fear, just believe." My boy Mike Kelsey summarized it like this. He said, "Jesus was not running late. He was taking his time to accomplish his plan. God has a plan and the power to execute his plan. And our difficulty." is that he's not operating according to our schedules. And many times we are tempted to judge his character based on our timeline. And if we're not careful, we'll make a premature judgment about the nature of God. See, Jairus came to Jesus looking for a healing, but Jesus was planning a resurrection. And I bet you if you were to go to Jairus after it was all said and done and ask him, was it worth it to put your faith in Jesus? He will say, absolutely. You will never regret trusting your unknown future to the hands of a known God. You will never regret it. Now, for some of us, you'll hopefully see the goodness of God soon in your life, and you'll see it in the land of the living. But for all of us, for some of us, it might be when we meet Jesus face to face, all of us will one day be able to say, God, your way, your timing was infinitely better than we could have ever imagined. And our struggle now is to not judge God based on our timeline. So the words that Jesus tells Jairus are the words that I want us carrying into this week. No matter what happens, don't be afraid, just believe. Now, the last thing we see in the scripture, which is meant to give us more faith and confidence that we can trust our, uh, our lives, the direction of our lives, um, the uncertainty ahead of us into the hands of a known God is that God is self-sufficient. Now, self-sufficient means that God needs no one and no thing in order to accomplish his will. Let's go back to Exodus 3. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire within a bush. As Moses looked up, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When, Moses, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Fast forward to verse 13. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is who you are to say I am to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. For thousands of years, theologians have been talking about the great I am. 
He is a great I am because he is whoever you need him to be. And God needs nothing, no one in order to accomplish his will in our world and in our lives. Whenever I plan something, I need the cooperation of people and I need certain pieces to fall into place in order for it to happen. But the great I am needs nothing. And we see this because of what we see in verse um, two and three, that God was in a flame of fire within the bush, but it was not consuming the fire. Now, here's why this is so dope. If you know anything about fire, you know that fire needs fuel and it needs oxygen. So it needs like wood and air, oxygen, in order to keep it going. And if it, one, of, one or the other of them burns out, if there's no oxygen or if there's no more wood, the fire will go out. A couple years ago, my wife and I went um, glamping in Utah. And the older I get, the more I realize things about myself. Like, I, I'm not a camping guy, right? I, I'm not lay on the floor with no running water uh, in the middle of a mountain somewhere with no phone service. Like, I, I'm about that glamping life. I need Wi-Fi. Uh, I need a bed. Um, you know, we went to the spot. It was amazing. I had a bed, a shower, a toilet in the room, in the tent. It was amazing. But it wasn't all good. We did have to rough it a little bit. We were responsible for our own heat. And every night in the, in the campground, the time of the year we went, it got pretty cold, actually. It got into the 40s at night. So one night, the first night, I set the fire. And I think I set too many logs in it at first. And I had it too high. And by 2 o'clock in the morning, the fire had burned out. And it was brick in that tent. Now, the fire burned out because it ran out of fuel. When we see the scripture in, in, in Exodus that God was aflame and it was not consuming the bush, in essence, it's showing us that God, does, God needs nothing. He needs no substance. He needs no policy. He needs no politician. He, needs, he doesn't need me. He doesn't need the internet. He doesn't need technology. God needs nothing in order to be the great I am. He is the great I am. He is whatever we need him to be. And he needs none of us or nothing else to accomplish his will. In Ephesians 1 and 11, it says that God is working out all things right now according to the counsel of his own will. And God needs nothing in order to do that. He is self-sufficient. He is the fire that does not consume the bush. Now, here's why this is so important in your life. As you are thinking about this week, this month, this year, you and I need to know that no matter what happens, God didn't need anything to happen in order to accomplish his will. So we can continue to pray to God and trusting in him because whatever we see happen in front of us is not necessary for God to accomplish his will. That God is still working and active and accomplishing his will, whether or not we think the pieces are falling in the order that they should be falling. So this week, as you go out and vote uh, and as you pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on earth, in America, in New York, as it is in heaven, uh, I pray that you would reflect on this to know that no matter what happens, God needs nothing. God needs no politician, no policy, no platform, nothing in order to accomplish his will. Nothing can thwart the hands and the plans of God. Is there anything too hard for God? The answer is absolutely not. But I don't want us to be afraid to trust our uncertainty and our unknown future to the hands of a known God. God is self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He is the great I am. Now, I want to close us in a model of prayer called the ACTS model of prayer, and it stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And this is one way to pray, and it starts off with adoration, which is us 
making sure that we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we're looking to God and we're focusing on that first before we get to our requests. Then we pray confession, how our life does not line up with who God is. Then we move to Thanksgiving, which is so big because we need to be reminded. Uh, we need to remind ourselves of God's faithfulness to us. And there's a scripture in Joshua 4 where Joshua uh, tells the people of Israel to take these smooth stones to be reminded of God's faithfulness to them in times past. And Thanksgiving is a spiritual practice where we rehearse and remind ourselves of how God has been uh, good and faithful to us. And the last one is supplication, asking God to move in our world. So I'm gonna close this in the prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I adore you for being self-sufficient. You don't need anything. You're so other and different from, from we are. Uh, you're independent. And Lord, uh, I, I confess that I oftentimes have recreated you in my image, a God who has limitations, and I put you in a box um, and I get anxious when things don't work in the order that I think they should go because deep down inside, I'm not trusting in who you are, that you're working out all things according to the counsel of your own will. But Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to me. Lord, there has never been a time that you have forsaken us and now is not the first time that you will do that. So Lord, you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. And Lord, I thank you for that in our lives. And Father, there's so much hurt happening, so much pain, so much calamity and Lord, I just pray that your kingdom would come. I pray that you would move in the hearts of people. And I pray that your kingdom would come on earth, in America, as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.